Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The U.S. intelligence community consists of 17 organizations, including the FBI, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the National Security Agency. But the agency of legend is the CIA, and several of its leaders are themselves legendary for good or ill, from William Wild Bill Donovan of the CIA's precursor, the OSS, to Richard Helms under Presidents Johnson and Nixon, to George Tenet under Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Those CIA directors who oversaw some of the most controversial American conduct since World War II had an influence greater than the agency's size and budget might suggest. Writer and documentary filmmaker Chris Whipple interviewed a number of past CIA leaders in an examination of their legacy for his latest book, The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. It's published by Scribner, and I'm very pleased that it has brought Chris Whipple to our show today. Hello. Uh, Great to be with you, Leonard. You write, quote, the CIA director is the person Americans depend on to prevent another Pearl Harbor or 9-11. How important is the CIA compared to other intelligence agencies or with other parts of government like the military that are tasked with defending the country? Well, you know, one thing I learned, Leonard, in uh, interviewing almost every living CIA director, uh, up through uh, John Brennan and and going back into the history, back into the early, back into the 60s with Richard Helms uh, and taking it all the way to the present, is that it's it's very hard to overstate the importance of the position. I mean, the CIA director really is the person we count on to uh, prevent another 9-11 or a lethal pandemic. I mean, of course, CDC is charged with warning us about about a virus, uh, but the intelligence community has a big role to play in that. And historically, the CIA has been the agency that, that warns us about threats. Um, you know, since 2005, there's uh, been a reorganization, as we all know. There's a, now a so-called director of national intelligence. Uh, but the CIA director still commands an army of analysts, covert operatives, paramilitary warriors, lethal drones, and of course, all of it is for naught if that director does not have the ear of the president. Does uh, CIA, is the CIA the only one in, engaged in covert operations? Well, it's, it depends on how you define covert operations. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly the, the military has its own secret operations, Uh, but largely it's the CIA that conducts covert operations. And um, one thing that I think that is generally misunderstood is that um, it's the extent to which um, congressional oversight has really changed the whole world of intelligence since the mid-70s. Every significant covert operation now has to be briefed to Congress, the so-called Gang of Eight, and that's made a huge difference. Uh, Don DeLillo wrote, quote, if America is the world's living myth, then the CIA is America's myth. <laughs> do, do you agree? America's myth? Yes. Well, um, maybe, maybe. I mean, it's, it's certainly, they're certainly misunderstood in so many ways. It certainly uh, got an, uh, occupies a huge place in our imaginations. Uh, and I think that um, it's again, it's it's just a fascinating uh, world in which to spend the last five years, as as I did, and to to walk through that history from Richard Helms uh, and LBJ to uh, Gina Haspel and Trump. I mean, one thing one thing about the CIA director's job is has been the same no matter all the all all the other changes. And that is, at the end of the day, the director has to be able to tell the president stuff he doesn't want to hear. Mm. And uh, God knows that was true for Richard Helms with LBJ, and it's even more true for Gina Haspel and Donald Trump. Now, you, uh, your previous book was The Gatekeepers, and you also the executive producer and writer of Showtime's documentary film, The Spy Master, CIA and the Crosshair. Is that that was uh, four years ago. Uh, I'm assuming this grew out of that, but 
has a lot changed in the uh, since 2015? Well, you're right that it began with that film in 2015. Uh, with the filmmakers uh, Jules and Judyon Day and Susan Zerinsky, uh, who's now president of CBS News. Uh, at that time, I talked to every living CIA director. Uh, and uh, the world has changed, as we all know, quite a lot since 2015. We have a president who, uh, as I wrote in the Washington Post in an op-ed a few weeks ago, uh, a president who has nothing but contempt for the intelligence community as compared them to Nazi Germany, and mm. he is... As I, as and I complains wrote, about the deep state. He, he is essentially unbriefable, uh, not only because he doesn't read his president's daily brief, but because, as you just said, I mean, he believes they're a deep state. Now, it's not the first time a president thought that the CIA was full of liberals who were trying to bring him down. Richard Nixon believed that of the CIA. He was convinced that Richard Helms was the head of this effete, martini-sipping Georgetown set uh, that wanted to uh, run him out of office. Well, in the end, Helms did run him out of office when Nixon tried to uh, pressure him into participating in the Watergate, Watergate cover-up, as, as we all know from history. Uh, but the idea that the CIA is a deep state uh, arrayed against the president is a delusion that was shared by Nixon and Donald Trump. Now, wasn't the CIA among the advisors that warned President Trump that a flu-like pandemic was a serious risk? Did he just ignore it because of uh, those feelings he has about the CIA? We are suffering the consequences the catastrophic consequences of a president who ignored the warnings that were in his president's daily brief on a regular basis beginning in January. Uh, Donald Trump looked the other way, uh, and we are now at a point where we have almost 200,000 Americans dead. Uh, now, it wasn't just the intelligence community he ignored. As we all know, uh, there were many other warnings from the CDC and from Navarro and from uh, from from others, and Woodward's written about this too. I have a whole epilogue in my book sure. uh, that spells out what Trump knew and when he knew it, and what the intelligence community told him. But you're right, as I was saying, Leonard, before. I mean, he's he's unbriefable about things that he does not want to hear, and uh, he didn't want to hear about the pandemic. And didn't Mike Pompeo, by that time the former CIA director, uh, propagate a conspiracy theory that the coronavirus escaped from a Chinese lab? Uh, yeah, and, uh, and Trump and Pompeo and others still refer to COVID-19 as the Chinese virus. So is this a, a kind of a covert war against China? Tucker Carlson was still spreading that story a couple of days ago. Yeah, this is one of the problems when, when you put a, uh, a political sycophant into a job uh, like the CIA director or, for that matter, as, as Secretary of State. When Mike Pompeo, uh, it's, it's an interesting story that I tell in the book. Trump, at first, didn't want to even have briefings. He wanted nothing to do with intelligence briefings, and he only relented when his pal Mike Pompeo would agree to do them personally, that he would be there in the in the Oval Office. Um, and Pompeo, as CIA director, uh, failed, in my view, because above all else, the CIA director has to be the honest broker of intelligence, uh, not a partisan, not and certainly not someone who will then go out in public and repeat Trump falsehoods for the world to hear, such as uh, the notion that... Um, Iran was not in compliance with the nuclear agreement, the nuclear accord, for example, one of several Trump falsehoods that Pompeo parroted as CIA director. So that's a that's that's a real problem, as obviously. Now, the, the image of the CIA in the popular imagination is reflected in entertainments like Three Days of the Condor or Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan series. How, what do uh, CIA directors or, or the CIA employees make of the, those their fictional counterparts? Well, because they, they must the, be aware that the, that they they affect the way the public sees the CIA. Sure. sure. 
Well, the thing about the CIA and its and its history, which I, of course, recount uh, off through the eyes of the directors uh, going back almost 70 years, uh, is that there's there's something for everybody. I mean, there's certainly uh, no shortage of absolutely hair-raising covert adventures uh, that, uh, that I write about in the book. And one of them uh, is the incredible uh, story of the CIA's greatest manhunt, which lasted for decades for the head of operations of Hezbollah, Imad Magnia. And I have uh, the untold story of how they almost got him on Bill Clinton's watch. They, with the help of his mistress, they tried to kidnap him in Beirut. That went south, and ultimately they were able to get him in a joint CIA-Mossad operation in Damascus in 2008. And I <clears throat> recount that story in hair-raising detail. Um, so there's there's certainly there's, there's plenty of that um, in the history of the CIA. But the notion that the agency is some kind of rogue elephant to use uh, – the late Senator Frank Church's famous expression is really not true. Um, you know, since the since the 70s and congressional uh, supervision, um, the fact is that the CIA essentially does what the president asks it to do. They don't go running around the world uh, committing mayhem on their own authority. When they get in trouble, it's usually because presidents got them in trouble. So when the CIA plotted to overthrow governments, to assassinate foreign leaders, to experiment on humans, were, were programs like Operation Mongoose uh, to assassinate Castro or MK Ultra to experiment on human subjects uh, initiated by uh, the president or, or uh, for the most part, they... yeah, yeah, yeah. For the most part, absolutely true. Uh, and this, of course, was before congressional oversight. But one of, one of the uh, one of the great stories. In the book, in my view, um, you know, I, I try to humanize these directors. And one of my favorite stories w was told to me by Cynthia Helms, the widow of Dick Helms. She said he would come home at night and he would complain that he had lash marks on his back. Not literally, <laughs> but, but, but figuratively from Bobby Kennedy hectoring him all day long to get rid of Fidel Castro by fair means or foul. Um, so there's no question about it that all of most of that stuff, if not all of it, was really driven by presidents uh, who were asking them to commit illegal acts. And, and another thing that Cynthia told me that really stuck with me was when she said, you know, Chris, they were all asked to do things they shouldn't have done. Yeah. Helms, so uh, just to just to go on for a second on this, Helms was asked by uh, LBJ to find evidence any which way that foreign communist powers controlled the anti-Vietnam protest movement. And so he launched uh, MH Chaos, which is an illegal right. domestic surveillance program. That was LBJ um, pressuring to do it. And in the end, of course, as I said earlier, Helms uh, redeemed himself by standing up to Nixon and refusing to uh, participate in Watergate. But hadn't uh, didn't he order many CIA records like those of MK Ultra destroyed during the Watergate period? Yeah, but he you know he he did. Helms was a great believer that the CIA secrets should stay at the uh. CIA, uh, and of course when his uh, one of his successors, Bill Colby, came in, and um, and he wound up revealing the so-called family jewels. All of these, uh, it was a 693-page compendium of uh, <clears throat> skullduggery and attempted assassination plots and all the rest. Uh, Helms couldn't destroy everything, uh, and he all of this stuff was in the so-called family jewels, which Colby decided to reveal to Congress. Uh, it set off a civil war within the CIA. Helms and people like James Angleton never forgave Colby. And there are still people who think that Colby's death at the age of 76 in a canoe uh, mm. after a uh, after a canoe outing uh, is suspicious. So oh. there you go. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're also streaming at WBAI.org. And my guest is Chris Whipple, whose latest book is The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. Um, we, uh, you write that most covert operations are likely to fail. We had the Bay of Pigs, the Iran-Contra Operation Mongoose, <laughs> the revolt against Sukarno, the Kurdish rebellion against Saddam. Uh, are those the, the ones that we learn more about? Uh, do some succeed and uh, we never even hear about them? Well, some, some succeed, clearly. Uh, Helms was among those uh, who really was a skeptic about covert operations, who, who believed, for example, that the, the successful, quote-unquote, successful CIA-sponsored coups in Guatemala and Iran uh, were uh, luck, you know, that all the stars had just happened to align. Um, and But by, by and large, he was a real skeptic. He managed to uh, keep his fingerprints off of the Bay of Pigs. He, he stayed a, a mile away from that whole thing because he knew it was cockamamie. Um, but... Um, and didn't he you know, disagree other, with Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara, Richard Nixon, and Henry Kissinger about the threat of uh, communist Vietnam th that communist Vietnam really represented, especially in regard to what was called the domino theory? Yeah, I love this story, and it's uh, and 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 this has really never been told before. Cynthia Helms, who who died last summer, uh, told me all about it, and and this was a case where Helms, uh, who was a he had a complicated relationship with LBJ, admired him for the great society, his domestic programs, was totally exasperated over Vietnam, tried to, uh, he, he, on his own authority, he commissioned a study of the so-called domino theory, which was really the strategic uh, basis for the, the Vietnam War, the notion that if South Vietnam fell, if we didn't defend it, that the rest of Southeast Asia would fall like dominoes. Uh, Helms did a study. It concluded that the domino theory was really not very trustworthy, that it was terribly flawed. Put it in a sealed envelope, gave it to LBJ. Cynthia Helms told me that it was deep fixed. It was, uh, it was, it was hidden by one of LBJ's aides because it was so considered so explosive. Well, now fast forward to the early 90s. Uh, the phone rings in the Helms household. Cynthia Helms picks it up. It's Robert McNamara, who has just found the memo and read it for the first time. And he starts yelling at poor Cynthia, who had nothing to do with it, saying, why wasn't I shown this? This might have made a difference. Uh, it's just one of those great, uh, great footnotes to history that uh, you, you just can't make this stuff up. But you suggest that uh, Helms is probably the single director who's done more to shape the CIA or the structure of the U.S. intelligence community as it is today. Now, did you think to some degree that's because he was one of just uh, uh, several directors who began intelligence work um, before they joined the CIA? He was at the Office of Strategic Service, the OSS, during World War II. That's right. He came out of OSS. So did Bill Colby, uh, and so did Bill Casey, who, of course, was a notorious uh, CIA director and, uh, and, a, and a marvelous character. I mean, he'd be nicknamed Mumbles. Nobody could understand a word he said. Uh, and uh, he They all had nicknames, it seems. Slam Dunk, Mumbles. <laughs> he used to, uh, you know, he, he was not much for table manners. He would, he would use his napkin as his tie. I, mm -hmm. I mean, as tie as his napkin, uh, forgive me. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, Helms, I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've, I've forgotten your original question. Well, I uh, two things. I asked him whether he uh, did more to shape the CIA than uh, and, uh, and the structure of the U.S. intelligence community as it is today than anyone else. And, and then I also asked you if you thought that it came out of the fact that he had actually begun his intelligence work with the OSS yeah, yeah. many years yeah. before. Yeah, no question that the OSS really shaped Helms as it did uh, Colby and Casey as well. And I think that Helms was considered uh, really sort of the iconic director early on. Uh, obviously, the CIA has changed dramatically with congressional oversight that began in the 70s. But I think that Helms 
sort of set the created the mold, uh, the, the template for the CIA director as the honest broker of intelligence. Uh, Dick Helms would go in, he would brief LBJ and uh, his national security team, and then he would leave the room before they started discussing policy. Uh, that's the ideal to this day uh, for a CIA director. You're not supposed to get involved in policy or recommending any kind of action, paramilitary, covert, or otherwise. You brief just the facts, and you depart. And um, that's a tradition that the CIA directors, the good ones, live up to. In May 1991, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan called for the CIA to be disbanded. Did anybody take that seriously? Well, you know what? I, I, one of my favorite quotes, um, and, and, and um, frankly, I, I, I forget who told me this, but it was so convincing uh, to me, it has to be true. And that is that um, this person said that the CIA will never, ever be abolished because then the president would have no one to blame. Uh, and and there's a there's a well-known lament uh, at Langley that you hear over and over again. Uh, and, and the saying is that in this town, there are only policy successes and intelligence failures. Uh, a classic example um, really is 9-11, where uh, the CIA was blamed uh, for being asleep at the switch before uh -huh. the uh, attacks of 9-11. Should they is, have been more aware? Now, the truth is, and I write about this in, in great detail in, in the Spy Masters and have uh, a detail that hasn't been uh, reported before. On, Ju on July 10, uh, George Tennant and Kofor Black, his, his deputy, and Rich Blee, who was head of the Al-Qaeda unit, went to the White House sat down with Condi Rice and pounded the table and said, we have to go on a war footing now. There were thousands of Americans were going to die in an imminent attack. They predicted it was coming. They couldn't tell you exactly where it was coming, but it was coming. And the Bush White House essentially ignored the warning. Um, and, of course, this was followed in August, as, you, as we all know by that. PDB, the presidential daily brief that said bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. But so um, nevertheless, the CIA was blamed. Uh, Kofor Black like, told me the story about how somebody told him, walked up to him shortly thereafter and said, gee, Kofor, how does it feel to have presided over the worst intelligence failure since Pearl Harbor? Um, the fact is that the Bush White House didn't want to hear about it. Now, uh, the Reagan administration uh, came under serious attack over the Iran-Contra scandal, and William Casey was director of the CIA or of Central Intelligence through most of the Reagan years. What role did he play in Iran-Contra? Casey was a fascinating case as CIA director, as I've as I've alluded uh, to before. Uh, a brilliant guy came up came out of OSS, uh, felt that there was absolutely no difference. Uh, there was really no difference in his mind between the Nazis and, and the Russians. Uh, he felt it was a no-holds-barred existential struggle with the Soviet Union. And he considered uh, Congress and Congress, Congress, for example, to be a bunch of gnats buzzing around his ankles, nipping at him and to be ignored. Uh, he wanted nothing to do with any constraints. And Ronald Reagan more or less set him loose. And uh, the Iran-Contra uh, scandal, fiasco, whatever you want to call it, was maybe the inevitable result. Um, I do think, and most of, and I've interviewed most of his close uh, deputies and every, a lot of people involved in that scandal, um, this, of course, for those who weren't around, was the was the illegal trading of arms for hostages to Iran and the diversion of the profits from that operation to the Central American guerrillas known as the Contras. But yes, I think that it was orchestrated. I think Casey was up to his eyeballs in it. 
and I spent, um, just as a footnote, I spent a lot of time with Bob Woodward talking about this. Uh, Woodward, you know, famously or infamously wrote about his visit with Casey at George Washington Hospital before he died of a brain tumor. And he wrote that Casey confessed to him that he had known all about that diversion. And he finally said to Woodward, I believe, just before nodding off. Well, the CIA, CIA people tell me that never happened. They don't believe Woodward was in the hospital room. I tend to believe Woodward on this one. Yeah. Um, he, he showed me, I went over to his house, he showed me his uh, transcripts of interviews. He's made, he had 43 interviews with Bill Casey. He played me tapes of conversations with Casey's wife. And um, I, I'm going with Woodward on this one. Now, Casey had been a director of Reagan's election campaign. Was there a political element uh, in his appointment as CIA director? Is that why he engaged in certain things like um, uh, supporting the Mujahideen fight against the Soviets in Afghanistan? I'm, 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 I'm chuckling just only because, you know, sometimes we can um, sometimes we can overestimate how much thought goes into these appointments. Uh, you know, Casey was determined to be Secretary of State. Uh, he had rescued uh, Reagan's campaign by pumping a lot of, raising a lot of money from his Wall Street buddies uh, to keep Reagan's uh, 1980 campaign afloat. And he thought he deserved to be rewarded as sec and become Secretary of State. Nobody thought that was a good idea <clears throat> to have a guy who dressed uh you know, like a hobo and and mumbled unintelligibly as Secretary of State. Al Haig seemed like a much better fit. And least of all, Nancy Reagan, who was the personnel director. <laughs> so, you know, the compromise was they basically said, Casey, Bill, you're going to CIA. And that's the way it happened. Now, George H.W. Bush had been director of the CIA briefly under President Ford before he became president. How did his experience at the agency affect his view of intelligence gathering as president or, or his relationship with his CIA director, William Webster? Well, it had a tremendous impact. Um, and, it, and the whole Bush chapter, I, I think, is a great chapter in the book because uh, you know, Bush was sent to CIA. He'd been envoy to the People's Republic of China. And uh, Bush was convinced when he was asked by Jerry Ford and Kissinger to uh, go to CIA that it was the end of his political career. Right. Finito. Done. <laughs> dusted. He was sure he was finished. Uh, it was historically a dead end uh, politically. And in fact, there was speculation, and I think Bush believed it for many, many years, that it was a plot by Don Rumsfeld to send him to Siberia, essentially. <laughs> and um, it didn't work out that way. But anyway, at the at the end of the day, <clears throat> it made a tremendous impression. Bush uh, Bush loved being CIA director. He uh, it, it, he had a great, a real appreciation of importance of intelligence, and that carried over to his presidency. And uh, he was the one who insisted on daily presidential, daily intelligence briefings. Bob Gates was, uh, was, a, was a very successful director. They had a great relationship, I think, and, and that worked well when the Soviet Union was coming apart at the seams. But Trump ignored information from the Obama administration. George W. Bush ignored intelligence from the, the Clinton administration. Is that unique to Republicans and conservatives, or do top officials of each party ignore intelligence that's been gathered by the other uh, and see the whole thing as uh, being politicized? I don't think it's unique to uh, Republicans or Democrats. Um, I think that, again, this is this is the most difficult thing for the intelligence community, and that is to tell presidents things they don't want to hear. <clears throat> um, Richard Helms had a classic expression that he uh, that he often repeated, which was, "It's not enough to ring the bell; you got to make sure the president hears it." 
that's that's a challenge, and God knows it's a challenge for the current CIA director Gina Haspel, who's a fascinating story. We can we can talk about. We'll get to her in a moment. If you like. But, but yeah, we'll we, have to, moment, we have to take but, a little break right now, unfortunately. Uh, and this is London Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Stay with us because we'll have a lot more with Chris Whipple. my conversation with Chris Whipple, I need to take just a couple of minutes to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help us get back on our feet after this pandemic has made our financial situation really difficult. We need everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopez at Large and is financially able to step up right now by going to our website, give to WBAI.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep these one-hour deep dives that we bring you on Leonard Lopez at Large coming to you live on, on BAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And, and one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who, who contribute $10, $15, $20, whatever you, you wish, uh, or each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to the website give2wbai.org, we'll receive a free copy of the book that we're discussing, Chris Whipple's The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. It's our way of saying thanks for being among the listeners who sponsor this show. In fact, they're the only sponsors because WBAI doesn't take grant money or receive corporate sponsorships of any kind. We don't take ads like most public broadcasters do. But whatever level you feel comfortable contributing at, the important thing is that you step up now to show that support so we can continue to bring you these long-form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. Uh, We've got a lot of great guests lined up for you in the coming weeks, people like Chris Whipple, but we can only keep going with your support. So if you haven't already, why not make that call today, 516-620-3602, or by going online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us here, thank you very much. And now I am returning to the conversation with Chris Whipple. Uh, who uh, has done a lot of different things over the course of his career, including uh, being a producer at 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetown Time, uh, chief executive officer at CCWHIP Productions. Uh, you, you've probably seen him on, on MSNBC and CNN, and um, he, he writes for any number of newspapers. So. Uh, I'm very pleased that we're able to talk to him about this very important story. Uh, Chris, there have been 24 directors over 13 presidential administrations. Is that a high rate of turnover? Should we expect directors to stay longer? Is there a burnout factor? Well, you know, it it, it, it kind of reminds you of White House Chiefs of Staff, huh? Uh, hmm. They don't last very long either. And uh, here's a spoiler alert. Uh, many of the attributes that make successful White House chiefs of staff, uh, CIA directors uh, are, are well served by, too. Um, I, I think that, um, and we can come back to that, but um, there was George H.W. Bush we were talking about a minute ago. He was a believer that the CIA director should be apolitical and, mm-hmm. uh, that, and that they, they should be, CIA directors should stay on from one administration to the next. But just two uh, CIA directors did do that. Richard Helms went did. from Johnson to Nixon, George Tenet from Clinton to Bush. Yeah, and Alan Dulles was oh. uh, was Ike's uh, CIA director, and, and John F. Kennedy kept him on. He was rewarded for that by the Bay of Pigs, which uh, didn't turn out so well. Um, you, you could also argue that uh, 
that George W. Bush was rewarded uh, by uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, so it's not it doesn't always work out uh, keeping on the but I think George W. Quite frankly, I think a big factor in deciding to uh, keep George Tennant, who was Clinton's director, was was his father, Bush 41, uh, who really believed strongly in that. So um, I think that if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll use that as a segue Please. to directors who succeed or fail. I uh-huh. think. I think directors who who fail tend to be directors who have uh, no access to the president, number one, or little access to the president, and number two, um, fail to tell the president hard truths. Uh, so it's a real problem if you have a director who is uh, who is too close uh, to the president, but you have to have a relationship <clears throat> and you have to have some access. And uh, to give you uh, an example of a director who failed, uh, Bill Clinton um, and James Woolsey, for example. Uh, Clinton just didn't like Woolsey. He was a last-minute selection as CIA director. It wasn't an appointment that Clinton spent much time on. And they just didn't hit it off. And, in fact, during the first term, a, a, a small plane in a freak accident crashed in, on the south lawn of the White House, and Woolsey subsequently told reporters that that was him, Woolsey, trying to get <laughs> with the president. Uh, he literally had one meeting, one one-on-one meeting with Clinton. <clears throat> Clinton, however, was devoured intelligence, so that wasn't the problem. It was just personal. Um, so I think that um, successful CIA directors... Uh, there's no graduate school for CIA directors. There's no formula for good ones and bad ones. But I think the good ones tend to share something that White House chiefs of staff have, successful ones. And that is, you know, it's if you're somebody like Leon Panetta and you have, you're grounded and you're, you're confident and <clears throat> you've been around the block and you are comfortable in the corridors of power and and on Capitol Hill, and you can most importantly walk into the Oval Office, close the door, and tell the president what he does not want to hear, that's more valuable than knowing your way around intelligence, in my view. You're right that John Brennan was very aware of his place in history, but I would assume they all are on some level. Yeah, if if they weren't, they wouldn't have talked to me. Uh, (laughs) You know, I think that these guys... uh, cooperated with me, talked to me, because, you know, it's better to be, to have a voice in shaping your, your place in history than, than, than not. Uh, they're all very conscious of it. <clears throat> John Brennan's about to come out with his own book, and I was lucky to have him at my launch party the other night. Uh, and um, I think that Brennan was... Um, a, a good a good example of somebody who, believe it or not, considering how partisan a lot of people think he is today, he absolutely personified that role of honest broker of intelligence. By all accounts, everybody who worked in that White House will tell you that when John Brennan walked into the Situation Room, he gave it absolutely straight to Barack Obama. Uh, without fear or favor. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I, I, I do think that you, it helps to have a relationship with the president, but not to be too close to him. But I, I, I'm still a bit confused about Donald Trump's relationship with the CIA, because uh, as we pointed out, he uh, is totally suspicious of it. And yet he named Mike Pompeo to be his CIA director. Later, he made him uh, his secretary of state. So obviously he feels uh, he trusts Pompeo. Uh, why would he mistrust the CIA that Pompeo directed for a time? Well, I, I think that um, there's nothing very confusing about Donald Trump and, and his relationship with the intelligence community. Uh, he totally distrusts it. He, he, has, uh, he has contempt for it, uh, as, he's, uh, as he's expressed on innumerable occasions, from, from comparing them to Nazi Germany uh, 
right beforehand to that. Remember that trip to uh, Langley on his first day in office when he stood in front of the memorial wall uh, mm-hmm. commemorating fallen CIA officers and uh, bragged about his inauguration crowd. This is a this is a president who brings uh, real distrust uh, and animosity toward the community, uh, and it makes it. Almost mission impossible for Gina Haspel, I think, because, again, in the best of times, it's hard to tell presidents hard truths. But with this president, uh, it's almost impossible. He is uh, he is incurious. Uh, he thinks he knows everything worth knowing. And he uh, he believes that uh, these people, the, the as he would put it, probably the uh, the intelligence community, are the folks who brought us uh, weapons of mass destruction. But is, hasn't uh, Gina Haspel been a rather controversial figure? Uh, she, she was involved in American interrogation and torture programs to the point where some referred to her as Bloody Gina. She's an absolutely fascinating character. And, and uh, the, the chapter I, I have on her uh, is one of my favorites. Uh, you know, she's a mystery woman. Uh, she flies under the radar. She never gives interviews. She's given two speeches since becoming director. It's because her DNA is as a covert operative. She came out of Kentucky, University of Louisville, uh, studied journalism, interestingly, and uh, but wound up uh, cutting her teeth as a covert operative in the back alleys of Africa. Uh, she then uh, attached herself to a very unlikely mentor, uh, at the CIA, uh, Jose Rodriguez, of all people, the creator of the Enhanced Interrogation Program, uh, and he sent her to the black site, the infamous black site in Thailand, where Abu Zubaydah, uh, a top al-Qaeda terrorist, uh, was, was waterboarded, among other things. And she was head of the base there. And I have a story about uh, her, her unusual rapport with Abu Zubaydah in the book uh, that mm-hmm. I won't give away here. But anyway, she goes on to, uh, with coaching from Rodriguez, this unlikely feminist mentor, <laughs> she goes on to become head of the uh, CIA station in London. She wanted to go to Geneva, and Rodriguez said, no, 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 that's not good enough for you, Gina. You go, girl. You go for London. And so she did. And uh, the rest is history. She, from there, she became Pompeo's deputy and now the first woman to run the CIA. Uh, for all of the agency's interest in secrecy, haven't some directors been notably careless, like John Deutsch and David Petraeus? Uh, the, the, yes. you, you say both of them had big personalities. Uh, how do big personalities fit with the demands of leading intelligence gathering? Well, it depends on the personality. Uh, you know, Leon Panetta has a big personality. He's a big bear of a guy, gregarious, and, uh, you know, with that, that, that great belly laugh. And uh, he and George Tennant were probably the two most popular CIA directors, certainly in recent years. Uh, George Tennant got in big trouble, uh, and uh, Leon Panetta did not. He, he, of course, didn't hurt that he had the bin Laden operation on his watch. Tenet had WMDs. Um, So big personalities uh, can succeed or fail. And uh, you mentioned John Deutsch. John Deutsch was a case of, uh, I I was asked uh, the other day at my launch party in a lightning round, who was the most intelligent CIA director? It would be Deutsch. Uh, without a doubt, a former chemistry professor at MIT, a brilliant uh, guy who foresaw the age of drones. Uh, the trouble was he brought a healthy dose of condescension with him into the CIA. He, he said that uh, everybody at DOD was smarter than you guys, uh, <laughs> and he did not endear himself to Langley. And he had that. It's a great story in the, in the Deutsch chapter two attempted coups against Saddam Hussein that are almost Marx Brothers operations. You, you, you know, you can't make this stuff up. And they were disasters 
He had promised Clinton he would get Saddam out. He failed. And in the end, ignominiously, they found classified documents on his personal computer at home. So he was gone. But uh, Saddam was a problem for a number of them. You mentioned uh, Tenet. He said that uh, going going after Saddam would be a slam dunk, which got him into a a little bit of uh, trouble as well, a little bit of hot water. Um, They have to be careful. Now, in the go ahead. George Tenet is, uh, again, just a a Shakespearean character, uh, brilliant. Uh, gregarious, popular, uh, and but flawed, and uh, we're all flawed. But but in George's case, uh, weapons of mass destruction will be in the first paragraph yes. of his obituary, and yes. I write about that in his chapter. With uh, I had the opportunity, rare opportunity, to really grill him about uh, the CIA's WMD's fiasco, and I and I asked him point blank. Uh, so. Nobody cooked the books. And he practically jumped out of his chair and he said, no, nobody cooked the books. We'd wanted to cook the books. All we had to do was say that al-Qaeda was involved uh, with with uh, Iraq on 9-11. We never said that. Uh, well, others in the Bush and White House said that, but they did. the CIA did not. So at the end of the day, uh, essentially, George, in George's by turns, both uh, apologetic and defiant when it comes to weapons of mass destruction. And at the end of the day, he essentially says, well, we were wrong, and we have to live with that. Uh, But all the other intelligence services, or most of them, were wrong, too. In the aftermath of some of the CIA's notable failures, including violations of the law, have any directors tried to reform the agency? Um, and uh, and what have the, what's been the feeling within the agency by its employees who uh, who don't leave after an administration changes? Well, yeah, there have been uh, there certainly have been CIA directors who were regarded as reformers, and and one of the uh, outstanding ones, in my view, was uh, William Webster, who was known as the Judge because he was a federal judge. Uh, and FBI, former FBI director who became CIA director under uh, Bush 41. And uh, he came in after a period of, uh, you know, terrible scandals, the family jewels that we talked about before. Um, he was apprehensive about it. And he, and he because he was such a, uh, such a rule of law by the books guy, he wondered if he could survive at CIA. He called a friend at at, uh, Langley, and he said, can I, as a man of the law, do the job as director Mm. of CIA? And this Mm. person said, you can do it, and he did it. And another, uh, so the other reformer would be George H.W. Bush, who also kind of rescued the agency's integrity uh, when he came in. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry, I was interrupting you. Uh, with globalization and the rise of digital communications, has the CIA's legal limits become blurred? That's, I, you know, I don't know. That might be above my pay grade, that, that question. Um, because the world is changing so much. Uh, in the next decade or two, China will become the world's largest economy. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how well prepared the leaders of the American intelligence community are uh, for a changing world? Well, I think they have felt for a a long time that the CIA was behind the curve when it came to when it comes to technology. I think they're making a huge effort to uh, catch up with the private sector and be cutting edge when uh, in in all the technological realms. And and of course, you know, it's not just CIA, but uh, NSA and and DIA and others. Um, and uh, so they're, they're making a big effort to uh, to improve in that regard. Um, and I'm sure that the, the legal area of this uh, of that is 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 complicated. Uh, but I'm no lawyer, so I can't really uh, educate you on that. We have just about a minute left, but uh 
I want to ask you about uh, what's going to happen in the next decade or two. Can you predict China will become the world's largest economy? Uh, the status of the U.S. and the global community has already declined, and there are now threats that uh, that may be beyond human control, like the pandemic uh, and the effects of, of climate change. How might that change the role of the intelligence agencies? Well, in my view, it would just make them uh, all the more important. Um, you know, as I said, as I said at the outset, uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of the CIA director's job. I think that the challenges we're facing now just magnify uh, the difficulty of the job. Uh, certainly, and, and certainly, you know, we're under attack. Our elections are under attack uh, from the Russians, but that we're also under attack from a rogue president who uh, has no respect for. Uh, for laws or for constitutional norms or for the intelligence community. So I think that one big challenge right now in the immediate future is Regina Haspel to be absolutely on her toes as this election approaches, because there's no telling what might happen between now and then, including it's not far-fetched to imagine Trump ordering her to produce bogus intelligence that the Chinese somehow are directing Black Lives Matter, or um, who knows? So that's a real threat as well. Chris Whipple's latest book is The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. Congratulations on all the great reviews that you've been receiving. Uh, it's published by Scribner. And uh, thank you so much, great Chris. To be with you. Now, that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom, who prepared today's interview. Uh, if you're new to our program, you'd like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available uh, as a podcast on iTunes and everywhere that podcasts are available. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. Before I sign off, I'd just like to take one last moment to ask for your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all the other great programs on BAI, please consider becoming a member. And if you go to, if you decide to become a BAI, buddy by going to our website give to wbai.org or by calling 516-620-3602 you will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing the spy masters how the cia directors share history shape history and the future by my guest chris whipple uh, we hope that you will join us again tomorrow for a very different kind of show marion nestle and carrie truman will discuss their book let's ask marion what you need to know about the politics of food nutrition and health and we'll be taking your calls see you then <laughs>